Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, may you be glorified this morning by the preaching of your word. May Christ increase, and Lord, may I decrease, may I get out of the way. Lord, please help me not to preach a different gospel, but may my words, may my words this morning be a true and faithful gospel. Lord, give us ears to hear from you this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, we began a new sermon series on the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are the three, um, three shorter letters which Paul wrote to two young pastors, to Timothy, who was sent to pastor a church in Ephesus, and Titus, who was um, a pastor in Crete. We began a few weeks ago looking at Acts 19, how the church in Ephesus got its start, The Apostle Paul ministered in Ephesus for about three years. Uh, He faithfully preached the gospel daily, and during this time, he saw thousands, thousands of Ephesians repent of their sin, become followers of Jesus. Paul continued to disciple um, these young Christians. He stayed in Ephesus. He continued to help them grow in their faith. He knew at some point he wanted to leave Ephesus and go to Jerusalem, So before he left, he made sure that the church had a good foundation, um, that he could leave and feel comfortable with the church that he um, had grown, started, discipled. So that's Acts 19. Somewhere in between Acts 19 and Acts 20, Paul had developed, he had trained elders. So in Acts 20, just a chapter later, but this was much longer than just one page, Uh, He had trained elders who we see caring for the church at Ephesus. In Acts 20, he then informs the church that it was time for him to leave Ephesus to make his way um, back to Jerusalem. But in Acts 20, before he leaves, Paul warns these elders, plural, of some concerns that he has for them. Things that Paul thought, well, this might happen once I leave. So listen to what Paul says to, or maybe even prophesies about, the elders in the church at Ephesus. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul, speaking to the elders of this church, he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseers is a synonymous term for elders. It's just a function of what an elder does. Sometimes they're actually called overseers. Uh, In Philippians, um, Paul writes to the overseers. And so this is a part of what these elders are doing. They're overseeing the care for the church, which Christ obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Acts 19 and 20 took place around mid-50s AD. Paul wrote 1 Timothy about 10 years later. So within 10 years of Paul leaving Ephesus, the very thing he warned them about was in fact happening. So now let's finally begin looking at the content of 1 Timothy. So let's read the first 11 verses this morning. That's as far as we're going of chapter 1 as we see Paul's concerns come true. Paul writes, 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. When I look at 1 Timothy, um, you, we, we see Paul's concerns or predictions from Acts 20 were pretty spot on. And what's scary to me is it didn't require centuries for this to play out. False teaching happened within the first decade of this young church's life. Paul knew that this church was in grave danger of being divided and ultimately consumed by these false teachers who would lead them astray. So what does Paul do? Paul sends Timothy to this church to help restore the order that was kind of destroyed um, from this young congregation. So Timothy, he arrives in Ephesus around mid-60s. At this time, the city of Ephesus, it was large, it was diverse, affluent, it was religiously complex. Uh, we, we saw that in Acts 19. They were worshiping many different things. It had a thriving commerce. People wanted to be in Ephesus. Ephesus would have been pretty similar to any major city here in the U.S. Um, as we saw from Acts 19, the temple of Artemis was located in Ephesus. Uh, the temple was a place of commerce. It was a place of sexual perversion. It was a place of sorcery and magic. Timothy was not being sent to some you know, church in the Bible Belt to, to get it set straight. Ephesus was not founded on this Judeo-Christian values. None of the Christians at Ephesus could speak about how they grew up in church. Christianity was completely new to all of them and to the city. So Timothy had his work cut out for him. In verse 1, Paul is identified as the author. He claims that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, in a generic sense, an apostle simply means a messenger or a sent one. Paul was someone who was sent out on a mission. Each of the apostles were sent out to carry the mission of Christ. But it's important that we remember that Paul was not a part of the original 12 apostles. 
He was later called by Jesus specifically to bring the gospel message to the nations. And in some sense, this would make Paul the very first missionary to the Gentiles of the church. Paul's role in Christ's mission was to bring the gospel message, a message of repentance and forgiveness of sin to the Gentiles. This was unique. Uh, A lot of the Jews thought this was just this Jewish movement. But here we see Paul is going out to the Gentiles, which is kind of where Timothy has this important role, as we'll see in a minute. Paul would become the greatest missionary in the history of the church and the author of most of the New Testament. Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. There was no nomination committee or election held by the church for Paul's position. He was divinely appointed here by God to be a messenger of the one true king. In verse 2, Paul reveals the recipient of this letter, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Paul was Timothy's mentor. Timothy was Paul's apprentice. And nobody knew Paul's ministry better than Timothy. So what do we know about Timothy? Well, we know some. Um, Acts 16 gives us a brief bio into Timothy's life. In Acts 16, verse 1, we read, Paul came also to Derbe uh, and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So Timothy was biracial. He was not a true Jew. This is important for us. Uh, as Timothy is going out ministering to you know, these cities like Ephesus, who would be blended. Um, in Ephesus, we know there's Jews there. We know that it's primarily not a Jewish culture. Uh, verse 2 of Acts 16 says, He was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their own way, or as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. We see in verse 3 that Timothy was willing to do whatever it took in order to further God's purposes. Timothy, this young, grown man, allowed Paul to circumcise him so that Timothy could be more effective in certain cities. Now, that's, that's commitment. Um, Paul would often speak of Timothy as my son or here as my true child. There is a special bond between these two men. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul says this about him. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, Diconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. That's a pretty bold resume that Paul gives to Timothy. Timothy's unique. Um, Not only was Timothy following Paul's teaching here, but he was also beginning to act like Paul. His his conduct, his aim in life. 
Uh, he, he was beginning to look like Paul. Um, things that were important to Paul now become important to Timothy. Paul even boasts about Timothy to the church at Philippi. When Paul's writing his letter to that church um, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him. Now, Paul knew a lot of Christians. Paul traveled all around the known world, and here he says about Timothy that I have no one like him. Paul says that Timothy would have been like a first-round draft pick. He, he, he was an elite. He was someone that made a difference. He says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy wasn't just Paul's protege. He was his faithful minister and son in Christ. Paul was sending his very best to Ephesus. Timothy wasn't just some dude who Paul found on Indeed.com or ZipRecruiter. He was someone who Paul had seen that he had lived out so that he was genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. And now Timothy would have to deal with disciplining elders, discussing how money should be used by the church, how men and women have value before God but have different roles in the church. We learn in chapter 4 that Timothy would have the challenge of leading a congregation at Ephesus where he is probably younger than most of them. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Now, many of you probably grew up in the youth group that this was like your youth group's verse, right? This was like what you, you know, you'd probably see it on the, the wall of a youth group. But this is actually talking to Paul, uh, to, to Timothy. Paul is saying to Timothy, you... This young pastor, you preacher boy, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. Paul, uh, Timothy was not, you know, 13, 14, 15. He was much older, probably even 30. But he would still be younger than most of the people in the church at Ephesus. And he says, you know, set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Paul was trying to give Timothy the confidence to confront these older people, including these false teachers, that just because he's younger than them, that he shouldn't allow them to despise him or, or run over him. Now, most of you don't like to wake up in the morning and think about confronting people. And this is probably Timothy's personality. He, he didn't seem like he was someone who looked for confrontation. Now, some of you wake up, you can't wait to confront. Who am I going to confront today? That's just your personality, but it doesn't seem like that's Timothy. Paul warns him not to be that young adult who just speaks poorly to adults, that, that he needs to set an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. So 1 Timothy is written by Paul to Timothy, and at the end of verse 2, Paul writes, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I think Paul knew that Timothy would need these things, grace, mercy, and peace from God if he was going to make things right in Ephesus. It wasn't going to be about Timothy's own power. He was going to need the grace, mercy, and peace from God to make changes in this challenging church. Verse 3, as I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Here we see Paul's first command to Timothy, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul is basically telling Timothy to guard the gospel. Guard it, protect it. That the gospel has slipped through the cracks. His first concern was to tell Timothy that he must keep these leaders from teaching false doctrine. False teaching was a major problem in this church. Now, we don't really know exactly what uh, these teachers were teaching. We can kind of see just from reading it, as Paul makes corrections, you can assume Probably those corrections that Paul makes were probably some of the things that these teachers were falsely teaching. So we don't really know specifically what they were teaching. We don't really know who these false teachers were either. We can speculate. Um, at the end of chapter 1, Paul specifically names a few guys who he might have in mind here. Look down at verse 19. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may not learn that they may learn not to blaspheme. So here Paul, I mean, he just calls out these two guys. Um, and so is this who Paul has in mind in verses three and four? I'm, I'm not sure. There's really no way of really knowing. But who they are really doesn't matter. All we need to know is that they were preaching a different gospel, and that was enough for Timothy to bring a charge against them. Paul mentions that a part of this different gospel that they were preaching was devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. It seems like the false teaching had this element of Jewish law mixed in with it. For example, Paul mentions in verse 7 that these teachers wanted to teach the law, and they were focused on genealogies. So it's possible that these teachers were maybe taking like extra biblical writings that included stories and myths about different Old Testament figures, and they were using these writings to add to God's word. And then like when we get to chapter four, we'll see that they were teaching that you shouldn't get married, that you should abstain from various foods. So they had like this really strange view of the law. They were adding to God's law. They were putting more on people than what God's word actually put on Christians. Paul also said that these false teachers devoted themselves to myths, which makes sense from someone who grew up in Ephesus. Ephesus was full of Greek mythology, just like the temple of Artemis. Artemis was a goddess from Greek mythology. So you can easily see how a believer from Ephesus could still hold closely to Greek mythology. It's something they grew up with as part of their culture. This is still something I think that's common in our culture today. I'm not talking about mixing Greek mythology into Christianity, but mixing our culture in with Christianity. For example, let's just think about angels for a moment. 
you know, good Appalachian culture and angels. It's, it's not, notice I said good Appalachian culture, not good theology of Appalachian culture. There's some really strange views that our culture has with angels. And, and so I, I think our culture allows Hollywood to inform our understanding about angels more than we allow the word of God to inform our understanding of angels. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about when, when their loved one dies and they receive their wings. You've heard that phrase probably, right? Or that now their loved one is watching over us, that they're this you know, protecting angel over our lives. Nowhere in scripture does it teach that when we die, we become angels and get wings. Angels are angels. Humans are humans. We don't transform into angels after we die, but I'm sure all of you have heard someone speak that way. That's something that's in our culture that gets mixed in. So young Timothy is charged, uh, is charged to bring against certain teachers to, to correct false teaching that had been running rampant. But in verse 5, we see that Paul is concerned in not just the charge, but like how Timothy is to bring this charge against these elders. Look down at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. What Paul was saying is that a wrong use of God's law was producing arrogance and ignorance among those who teach. Arrogance and ignorance is a terrible combination. You never want to see arrogance in someone. You especially don't want to see someone with arrogance and also ignorance. I can maybe tolerate arrogance from, you know, someone who is, you know, brilliant. Um, you know, it's kind of expected in some sense, like, oh, okay, they're, they're just brilliant. They're just coming across a little arrogant. You don't like to see arrogance with someone who is just com completely ignorant. In verse 7, we see that these teachers were making these confident assertions about things that they didn't even understand. This is extremely dangerous. I really want, um, as, I, as I'm thinking about this, you know, Paul started this church mid-50s. He, he, he trained up these elders. He left. He said, you know, I feel like this is a good time. That I'm leaving the church in good hands. I'm leaving 10 years later. I, I just, I really want to believe that th how this is right now, and this is not how Paul left the church, that he didn't leave the church in Acts 20 in this mess. So I'm hopeful that maybe those elders, maybe they moved away, maybe some have even died. I want to believe that these are different elders than the one who Paul left in charge. If not, I know this just broke Paul's heart. A lot of you, you've come to me in the last you know, four or five years. I feel like this is kind of sped up. Um, last four or five years, there's been many pastors around the country that you've all have, you know, looked up to. You've maybe even to maybe to a wrong standard. You held them too high, and they have messed up morally, maybe doctrinally, and it's it's just crushed you. And so I'm thinking of Paul, like now writing this letter to Timothy, thinking about, you know, he he's thinking about names, faces, people that he's, you know, discipled. Maybe he's led to Christ. And now this church is in a mess. 
So one of the ways that Paul tries to guard this church from these vain individuals is by establishing qualifications for elders in chapter 3. See, when Paul left, there was, there was no First Timothy for the church to read and look at and go, oh, this is who we should have as elders. It hadn't been written yet. There was no Titus chapter 1 to go, oh, that's what an elder should look like. So Paul was, you know, he, Paul knows what they should look like, but he hasn't instructed the church yet. He didn't, he didn't leave them with instructions. One of those instructions or qualifications um, implies that an elder who is puffed up or has arrogance about him, then he is not fit to be an elder. But even with a list of qualifications, there is still no foolproof way of appointing an elder. At some point, every church, and it pains me to say this, every church will swing and miss. But if a church will adhere uh, to the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, that church will swing and miss far less than the church that simply puts any willing person in that position. There's far too many churches that are just desperate. We'll, we'll just, you know, if, it's like anybody want to be the pastor? Oh, sure, okay, well, you're the pastor now. It's like that's all that matters. If they just have a desire, a willingness, sure. And Paul says, no, don't, don't do that. Don't just put anyone in that position. They should be this man of character that we see in 1 Timothy 3, and we'll get to in a few weeks, or Titus chapter 1. Verse 7 serves as a great reminder that a pastor elder needs to have more than just a desire. Desire is great. They should have that. But desire without understanding is very dangerous. An elder needs to be someone who loves God's word, who loves to study it and loves to teach others about it. He has to be someone that has a clear understanding of the gospel. Because if he gets the gospel wrong, which I think is what's going on in Ephesus, then it's going to destroy the whole church. Paul is showing us that theology is of highest importance. It's not just practice. Uh, Paul's not like, well, who can grow the church? You know, who has like these good marketing background that knows how to, you know, you, you could build a business. You could probably just take those same tools, put in the church, increase attendance. Paul's like, no, that's, that's not what we were talking about. We've got to get this right. Right theology leads to right practice. And the church at Ephesus has poor practice, which has come from poor theology. And we can see some of this poor theology in verses 8 and following. Verses eight, verse 8 says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It seems like there are some in the church who believe that the law was intended to make one holy or right with God. 
Just as these certain teachers misused the Old Testament genealogies, they were also misusing the Old Testament law in general. The law is often misused in one of two ways, and I see both of these in church all the time. Either the law is treated as something that can make you right before God. So this is like some of you grew up maybe very legalistic church background. This is what, you know, they wouldn't maybe come straight out and say it, but that's by how they're preaching and acting that you're right before God by how you behave. The other side, the other spectrum is that the law is meaningless. And this is how some people understand, or I should say misunderstand, the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Some people believe that since it is called the Old Testament, that it's outdated. It's old. It's no good anymore. That Christ brings in the New Testament or covenant to replace the old one. This is a poor understanding of how the two covenants work together. Paul says that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law was not intended to make someone good or holy or right with God. It was not its purpose. Paul says that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient. One of the clearest understandings of the law and its relationship with the new covenant is found in the book of Galatians. I want to encourage you to read Galatians this week. If maybe you're, maybe you're looking for a book to read, read Galatians. It's incredible. Uh, listen to what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, verse 11. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So here Paul clearly says that no one is justified before God by the law. So then how is someone justified? How is someone made right before God? Paul gives us the answer in the same verse. For the righteous shall live by faith. Paul continues this theme of law in Galatians 3.21. Verse 21, if you drop down just a bit, Paul says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So if the law cannot bring righteousness, why then did God bring the law? Was it just to be mean to take away our fun? Be a joy stealer? So let's keep reading. Back, just back up a few verses. Galatians 3.19. Why does Paul give, or why does God give the law? Paul actually asked this question. Why then the law in verse 19? Here comes his answer. It was added because of transgressions. So this is what Paul is communicating to this church at Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 9, he says, Understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. The law was given so that we know that we can't keep the law. That's why why it was given, so that we would know that we are transgressors, that we are sinners. The law reminds us that we don't match up, that there is something deeply wrong inside us, that we are essentially broken in need of repair. One of the most heartbreaking verses on our depravity in the law comes from Romans chapter 7. Same guy, Paul, he writes this in chapter 7, Romans, verse 14. 
For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Does this describe any of you this morning? Have you been there? Have you ever wondered this about yourself? I don't want to do this thing, but I end up doing the very thing I hate. Any of you? Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can you empathize with Paul this morning? See, back in 1 Timothy, Paul gives this pretty exhaustive list of lawlessness in verses 9 through 11. It says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. He's thinking about some of the individuals that he knows in the church. These are things that he's seeing played out. For murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory, the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The law was given so that those who practice these things would know that these things are wrong, that these things will never produce righteousness. And at the end of the day, there is no list of rules to follow that myself or anyone else can create that will allow you to earn favor with God. There's not enough good for you to do to earn favor with the holy God. However, there is one who has obeyed the law perfectly. Christ's perfect obedience to God means that he was able to die on the cross to pay the price for your disobedience. And then he rose from the grave so that we could be united with him and he could impart his righteousness upon us. That's not about you being good enough. It's about him being perfect and him passing his perfect righteousness off to you. So you are not saved by the law, by your works, but you are saved because of his works. By faith in Christ's works, you are now made righteous. Paul says in verse 11 that this sound doctrine, that true teaching of the law involves, will always be in accordance with the gospel of the glory of God. Those who desire to teach the law in any other way must be charged. So regardless of who our pastors are, you know, Jay was up here earlier. He's one of our pastors. Um, Bruce, um, Dustin, myself. Our church has four elders at this time. Um, our role is to guard the gospel, to protect it, to make sure that your community groups 
or, or have a faithful, true gospel being taught, preached. Um, but as we see from the church in, in, in Galatia, that it's not just the elders' responsibility to guard the gospel. It is your responsibility as the congregation. As members of this church, you are to guard the gospel. Just think if, if it was just left up to the elders to guard the gospel, then the church at Ephesus, it was already too far gone because it was the elders who had preaching a false gospel. The congregation, you guys, you have to be ready. You have to be ready to charge even the pastors um, if they're preaching a false gospel. I'm giving you permission as the church to hold your elders accountable. Don't just trust what we teach is always true and right. Shame on you. This is why you need to bring your Bibles on Sunday morning. You need to be looking down, not just on the screen, following along with the passage, making sure that your elders are not teaching a different gospel. The strength of this church is not just with the elders. It's with you being sharpened, that you come ready to hear a faithful gospel. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, trust him today to be your righteousness. Trust him to be your righteousness before God. Please don't buy into the lie that your works can make you right before God, that having good church attendance or by giving to the offering or by helping someone in need, those things are great, but they never bring salvation. Salvation only comes from repenting of your personal sin against the holy God, trusting that his perfect life was sufficient to pay for your sin and now make you right with God. Please trust in him today. Don't leave without surrendering your life to him. Let's pray as the band comes back up to lead us. Lord Jesus, we come praying that you would guard our church. We know that it's possible for churches to stray away, to wander away from a true gospel. But I pray that you'd guard us, that you'd protect us from the evil one. That, that you would help our elders to see maybe when there's others coming in that might be wanting to devour the flock that are preaching a different doctrine, a different gospel, that are pulling your sheep away from you. Well, help us. Give us eyes to see that. And I pray that our congregation will be bold enough, uh, mature enough to see these things. They wouldn't just take their elders at their words, but that they would that they would know what a true and faithful gospel looks like themselves. So it would strengthen our church. Help us to be faithful. Help us to have a right theology that would lead to a right practice. A theology that would lead us to, to go out this week on mission, that we would love our neighbors, that we would tell others the good news of Jesus. 
that we would love our families, we would love our neighbors well. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.